everyone and welcome to next generation saints i'm your host nick coons so before we get started here today again i want to remind everyone to like and subscribe this podcast wherever you may be listening to podcasts you never miss a single episode that i put out there and before we really dive into this let's hear a word from my sponsor welcome back to next generation saints i'm your host nick coons you guys have probably heard about my uh, my collaboration with Grace Community Church now with through Pastor uh, Stuart Connectly, um, because they've been doing Give Me an Answer and I've been doing a lot of broadcasting on that. So um, I think I told you guys about that. If I haven't, here I'm letting you guys know right now. So I'm going to be doing these broadcasts now for um, Grace Community Church. In fact, I'm going to be doing this one for this particular episode. This is a brand new one. It's going to be Grace Community Church again. The sermon is going to be titled, Lead with a Limp. So this is going to be Pastor Stuart Connectly on this. So I hope you guys enjoy. All right. Hoping everybody is doing well this morning. Sitting next to somebody they like. Of course, of course you are. Now, Genesis chapter 32 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Many of you will remember it's the wrestling match, the great wrestling match between Jacob and it's Jesus Christ himself, actually. Oftentimes you think, oh, it's an angel. But it's actually Jesus in the Old Testament, which I think is pretty cool. So Genesis 32, verse 22 is where we're going to start. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. I'm glad I have one wife, two kids, and not eleven. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all the possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore this day the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. All right, so you'll remember the story of Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac the father had his favorite, Esau. Jacob, obviously that hurt his sense of confidence, his security, nipped at his heels all life long. He wanted his father's blessing and he was able to steal it. He was also able to steal the money because all the money was supposed to go to the elder son in that day and age, Esau. So he stole the blessing, he stole the money, and those are two big identity pieces for us, right? We can oftentimes build a whole life on what other people really think of us, whether they like us or not. We can build a whole life off of how much money we have or how much money we do not have. 
And then the third one, he's chasing after women, especially Rachel. My goodness, if you want to see a man idolize a woman, look into the passage of Jacob and Rachel. He wanted her more than anything in this world, and his whole life became about getting her. So we can build our lives on wanting somebody to marry, lusting after them, and ultimately build our lives. And it's really an insecure identity, obviously, when we do that for and with another person. So he takes off because Esau is going to kill him. And he goes to his Uncle Laban's house. And Uncle Laban turns the tables right back on Jacob. It's a fascinating story, obviously, where now Jacob is the one getting deceived. Now it's Jacob who he thinks he's going to have to work seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. But Laban deceives him. And it's seven more. And then all of a sudden, it's Laban's sons who are saying, whoa here, Dad. Jacob is making a lot of money, and he's making so much money that where's ours going to be? And how can we really make money that even comes close to making that of what Jacob's making? And we see the problems that surface when the jealousy starts to occur. But it's God himself that tells Jacob, all right, Jacob, you got to go. It's time to leave. Take Rachel. Take the others and get out of town. And that is when... He is leaving and actually going to face his brother Esau to try and reconcile, although he probably didn't necessarily have the greatest intentions for why reconciling with his brother. It's probably just to save his own skin. But then he's going to eventually be meeting Esau, but he has this incredible wrestling match. And that leads us to our two points this morning because of this wrestling match, what we really get from the match. And it's one, the dangers of leading with no limp, and then two, what we gain by leading with a limp. And hey, this could be leadership of our families, this could be leadership in our businesses. We're all leaders in different ways, whether we really realize it or not. But starting with the first point, there are three categories in my mind that you can possess when leading with no limp. All of them are detrimental, totally detrimental to your life. One would be narcissism. When you lead with no limp, you can become a narcissist. Two, it would be fear. You just live a life really crippled with fear. And then thirdly and finally, a life filled with addictions. So firstly, a life of narcissism. We're too married to our image to come clean about how messed up we are oftentimes when we're just so self-focused because we can't show a limp. We have to be perfect in every kind of way. We're filled with image and ego, wanting no one to find us out. There is zero vulnerability. So I have to be the person who's at the center of my universe. Again, I have to admit no flaws. And somehow I think I'll get great peace from this, or I'll just be a winner in life if I do it this way. But we know that this is not true. The most narcissistic people are typically the most fearful people at the end of the day. John 3.30, I love when John the Baptist has this huge following, and he says that Jesus, who's coming after me, who I'm preparing the way for, must become greater, and I must become less. I must decenter myself, because I want more of him, because I know he is the savior of the universe, not me. Now, John had this perfect opportunity to become the most egocentric person in the universe, because he was getting this huge following, and even his disciples were saying, why are you, why in the world would you deflect praise 
from so many people off onto this Jesus Christ character. Don't do that. That's ridiculous. Grow in your own type of brand, name, label. But he does the opposite. He's not a narcissistic leader. He leads with a limp. He says, no, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to be weak because I know there is somebody coming after me whose sandals I am unfit to even tie. Fitness experts talk oftentimes about the core and how if you grow a strong core, that is kind of the peak of athleticism. And I remember all these core exercises I had to do for sports growing up. And it wasn't just a million sit-ups. You know, oftentimes we think of, oh, get the beach body or go from a size 40 down to a 38. You got to do that by doing 100 sit-ups at least a day, right? But oftentimes that does next to nothing. It's core in order to grow in athleticism, in order to slim down in many ways. And in order to get a strong core, oftentimes you have to do very awkward movements. So a push-up on a medicine ball with one hand, throwing a tennis ball while you're doing a bridge, while you're trying to hold in this bridge, in this plank formation. It's awkward, it's strange, and yet it's growing muscle in us. It's taking these, these weird steps in order to say, you know what, in order to really grow strong as a centered person in my physical body, I'm going to have to get out of my comfort zone. Somebody who does not lead with a limp never gets out of their comfort zone. It's here I am. This is me. It's my way or the highway. But somebody with a strong core, somebody who's going to get out of their comfort zone and say, no, I'm not the center. God's the center. It's going to take discomfort. It's going to actually take relying even on other people. But the incredible consequences of that is a life of self-discipline and passion rather than controlling life and the fears that may arise when we do so. Because oftentimes I'll talk in the counseling office with somebody, and they don't come off as a narcissist at all. If anything, they come off as, as very humble. And yet they have to control their universe because they're fearful if they don't control their universe, something is going to go drastically wrong. And that's another form of great pride. How else do we see this? Well, we see it in rigid, opinionated thinking. After World War II, there were many studies that were done to hopefully prevent the authoritarian, despotic ideologues and governments that had popped up at that time. It was discovered that a fascist despot and a communist demagogue are way more alike than different. Everybody thought that they were just extremely different. Their beliefs are contradictory, perhaps, but their personalities and ways of leading, identical. See, there was a refusal to remain open to new beliefs and new ways of understanding old convictions. It was this rigid type of thinking that led to no, it's my way or the highway. This is how things need to be done. And ultimately, this slipped into treating others way ahead of those who were considered less than. And we saw the wars that came from it. I see this regularly with religious fundamentalists and atheists. Oftentimes, I find Christian fundamentalists who would never question their faith, who are basically look at any typical person and say, never doubt God, and become very prideful and narcissistic in their own faith, as opposed to understanding the cross and the humility that comes from debasing oneself, asking questions, and serving people who are of a different faith. I see it on the other side with atheists, 
who say there absolutely is no God, and you're an idiot for believing that there truly is a God. And they never start to doubt their own belief system. Instead, it's rigid thinking. It's my way or the highway. It's my thoughts. There's an inability to reframe, step outside of oneself and say, wow, I may not have all the answers. Let me dig a little deeper. Secondly, fear. Most leaders avoid naming their failures due to fear, and fear is completely an understandable motivator. I mean, how many of you in here have been leading in certain situations, especially in business, and have thought, gosh, if, I, if I'm vulnerable, people are going to find me out. It's the kiss of death. They're going to find me out, and they're going to say, no, no, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm not trusting this leader. <laughs> Complete failure. Complete mistakes. They can't be trusted. Well, study after study shows even though there can be an occasional kiss of death in that, way more often the leader who is willing to show the limp, be like Jacob after encountering the great wrestling match where Jesus touches his hip and gives him that limp for life, those types of leaders actually instill way more trust and confidence and deeper relationships in those who are working for them. Thirdly and finally, addiction. Leaders can easily isolate themselves and fill, just be totally filled with loneliness. And fall into cancers like workaholism. Fall into cancers like alcoholism in general, drug addiction, whatever it might be. Being emotionally aloof. Because they have fallen into having to keep up this facade that is ultimately tremendously detrimental to them. They lose an ability to have authentic relationships, to allow people to come in. This was Jacob. He didn't have real authentic relationships. He was playing people like pieces of chess on a chessboard in order to really fill up his own sense of need and to get the gains he wanted to gain in life. All right, but secondly, what do we really gain by leading with a limp? I love in Genesis chapter 28, if you remember earlier back and Many of your kids have studied this story, excellent biblical story, with their Sunday school teachers. And it's Jacob when he has that great dream. And he has the, the rock for the pillow. And it's the anti-Genesis 11 Tower of Babel story. Tower of Babel story, you'll remember, they're building an incredible skyscraper to make a name for themselves. And God comes down and he confuses them so they can't understand each other. They're all speaking in different languages. But what Jacob is experiencing there is... God's tremendous grace, angels ascending and descending to connect with Jacob. That is how God operates. He's saying, yes, lead in weakness. Have a limp. It's not all about simply trying to gain for oneself, trying to hoard for oneself. We see here, Jacob starts to gain more empathy for others. You'll see with this interaction with Esau that there's true, authentic connection with his brother. He's not trying to play his brother anymore. What else comes from leading with a limp? Growth in character. Surrender to God. So important to remember the benefits and say, I'm going to take a risk in leading with a limp. I'm not going to try and cover up all of my weaknesses and never be vulnerable with somebody. So I'll try and be vulnerable right now with you. Um, I was recently on vacation in Cape Cod, and go-karting was only $9. So what did I do with my family? We go-karted like 15 times, 
And when we're out there, I, I thought there was a small risk because I was taking my two-year-old in my go-kart and my wife was taking our four-year-old. And our two-year-old, you know, the seatbelt buckle was coming like, like down over her face pretty much, but we're all competitive out there, so we're really going to gun it. And so it really doesn't matter what happened, what the risk is. So, so we start off, and I'm thinking, though, that this is going to be a nice, like the, the course, the track was pretty full, but I'm thinking it's, it's going to be a nice time together. Sure enough, right out of the gate, I see this boy, and I mean, he, he was 12, maybe 10, maybe 8, but we'll say that he was 12 at least. And he comes whipping up alongside of me and Violet, my two-year-old, and he cuts us off. And I'm thinking, wow, that's a pretty audacious move right there. <laughs> All right, we'll see how this plays out. And he, he takes off, and then he cuts my wife off, who's, who's well ahead of us already. And sure enough, he comes back around, and I think he had lapped us maybe once. Then this time, not only does he try and cut us off just by going around us, but he actually bumps us. Then he bumps us again. And I'm looking at Violet, and, you know, her head's kind of going. It's like a little bobblehead. And I'm thinking, okay, wow, this is, okay, something needs to be done. There needs to be a pastoral rebuke here. There needs to be some, <laughs> this kid clearly is not getting spanked at home. And so, so we, we eventually, I, I had very little chances. My, my cart was very slow. It had nothing to do with the driver. It was just a slow cart. <laughs> and I saw the perfect opportunity, though, after he even bumped my wife. And, you know, and she had a four-year-old. I had a two-year-old. And so I just thought this was outrageous. So I see this, this perfect opportunity, and I, I go for it. I, I see he's trying to get on the inside to pass my wife again, but I'm seeing that the guy's waving us off to, to, to finish off the course, that we're done. And so I come up alongside of my wife, and I see just as he is starting to pass her, I, this is my opportunity. And so I just, you know, kick it into high gear, hit her cart, that hits his cart, and he goes spinning off into the grass. <laughs> Now, now, there was no mangling, no physical mangling or anything, or I wouldn't be telling this story right now. But he um, gets back on, we, we, we peel off, he, he jumps out of his car, zero tears, I promise, humps, jumps out, hops into his, his grandpa's car, and I saw his grandpa was totally, like, not feeling bad for him whatsoever. This is my vulnerability, though, right now. This is my vulnerability. It, we, some may call it bullying, I just think it's kind of an overly competitive drive, perhaps. But regardless, how can we grow in vulnerability with each other? It's hard to do because so often in this town, in the towns beyond this town, we'll often hear somebody say, oh, how's your marriage? Great. How are your kids? Perfect. Absolutely perfect. And we know that that's never been true in the history of the world. And yet people put these facades up, right? Vulnerability is so hard, especially when talking about one's own sin or the sins of your kids. And yet, leading with a limp says something is wrong, and there has been a failure in the past, and I have many failures today. But there's also beauties in failure, and that's going to lead us to our next passage, where it's Paul's thorn in the flesh. But we'll stick with Jacob for a second, because the thing about failure is there can be great things that come from it, like opportunity. We see Jacob's mindset shift. His reasoning shifts. It's now becoming more about God and people, not so much about getting somebody's blessing, the jealousy piece. It's not so much about the money anymore or the women anymore. No, it's a shift. It's now about humility. That's why he's going to become one of the three top patriarchs to have ever existed. That's why he's going to lead a great nation now in an incredibly 
humble kind of way that's led by a limp, an actual limp for him, obviously, but also a metaphorical limp out of weakness. So failure. Well, I look at failure, again, it's opportunity. It's a chance to reevaluate and come back stronger. It's failing upwards because failure is the best teacher. I mean, you gain the most knowledge from failure, not from success. I also love talking to people who have been through failures and pains and sufferings because they're way more deeper, typically, than those who have just had charmed lives and they've had really no failures in their life. Third, though, failure isn't fatal is an important one to remember because oftentimes in our very comfort-oriented society, we also look at failure and think, whoa, this is going to be fatal. If my kids don't get into this school, whoa, if I don't get this job, whoa, if I don't appear like this in front of you all, now that could be totally fatal. And I've known people like this, and it looks painful to try and keep up that type of energy when we know, again, at bottom, it's all completely fake. That is trying to lead with no limp versus the freedoms, the peace, the joy, the opportunity that comes from saying, I'm going to lead with a limp like Jacob. So this leads us again to our next point. And our next point is the thorn in the flesh that Paul struggles with. I love the vulnerability piece that we have in small groups. One person said to me, it's incredible how small groups, you know, I love them. I love that they're so important to the health of this church. I just would never want to be in one. And that person was getting at, again, the vulnerability piece. Because in small groups, it's kind of like you'll be meeting, and it'll be this, this Texas rodeo, okay corral type staring at each other, thinking, okay, who's going to share first if we're really going to be vulnerable with each other and talk about our sin? And nobody really wants to do it. But then Jenna sticks her hand up in the air and says, okay, I'll go. Or Tom sticks his hand up in the air and says, I'll go. And they'll say, you know, back in 1987, I had this, this real addiction. And praise God, the addiction is totally done with. And everybody in the group will start clapping and say, wow, that's, that's fantastic. Praise God, there was great change. Versus Bill over here, who's going to say, you know, last night I was drinking heavily and I started yelling obscenities at my family. Then everybody's thinking, okay, okay, we got to get Bill out of here real quick. Real quick. Take off, Bill. And there's the door. Don't let it hit you on the way out, Billy. So, so it's the whole piece of, are we going to stick in there with each other? Because we think oftentimes that we are finished products. That God supposedly is not just dealing with us right now in our failures, and it's two steps forward, one step back. Instead, we're supposed to already be there, and we're supposed to be dusted up, perfect, beautiful little Christians. But we know that that's not the case. That's not the case, obviously, because of what we see on the cross of Christ. And it's important to be able to say in those moments, you know what? It's okay that you messed up last night. We're not going to leave you there. We're going to encourage you, and we're going to hold you accountable. That's what this group is for. It's not going to be cheap grace. It's going to be real grace, though, saying that, you messed up, let us help. Vulnerability is only, the opportunity to flourish in vulnerability is only done through friendships. Because you can't ultimately, at the end of the day, at least in my mind, in my experience, really flourish through your own just vulnerability and, and showing your scars. 
No, you need friends to come up alongside of you to encourage you and to hold you accountable in the very process. So we have here Satan with Paul. Oftentimes people think, whoa, is it, uh, what's, what's going on here? What's, what's Paul dealing with in this thorn of the flesh? Is it psychological issues? Is it physical? What is the deal here with Paul? But if we read in 2 Corinthians 12, we'll pick up at verse 7. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Okay, so it was a messenger of Satan. So that's something outside of Paul. It was something evil. And if you follow it further, it most likely was that messenger of Satan, it was a dark angel, messenger in the Greek is angel, a dark angel, it comes up about 180 times, that constantly was nipping at the heels of Paul and his churches that he was trying to consistently fix the problems in because there were so many arguments, there was so much sexual licentiousness, the problems went on and on. So that was the thorn in the flesh. And yet we read down here, verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Wow, even the Apostle Paul had unanswered prayer. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's, that's pretty powerful stuff there. Because he says that in different types of ways throughout his life. That vulnerability as well. It's the paradox of strength and weaknesses. Paul sees it in himself. He sees that he's struggling with it. And he sees that God is going to force him to lead with a limp. This thorn in the flesh. Sorry, Paul, you're not going to be the perfect Jewish rabbi that everybody has known for so long with this brilliant intellect for the rest of your life. Now you have a thorn in the flesh. Now you have weakness. Now you have to lead with vulnerability, humility, connecting actually authentically with people, not just using them. And that's going to be a challenge for you, Paul. And yet, watch you become an incredible leader from it. Because the Christian principle on leadership, and for those who are not leading, is power to weakness to power. Power that is false, it's not real power, Again, it's all my own type of power. But then weakness, we see that we get cut out from the knees. And that weakness is a beautiful thing. Because now I start to understand my grace, God's grace, is sufficient for me. See, it's like the devil sending you an email with a little attachment. And that attachment, when you start to experience these thorns in the flesh, it's not the thorn itself. It's what it is really attached to the thorn that becomes the problem. Because the thorn can be a very, very good thing, but the message that's attached to it is, you're not good enough. It's not about my grace and me and me creating your identity. It's about you. You've, you've fallen. You're a failure. You're weak. This person said no to you at the prom. You are a failure. That's what the devil says. It's the attachment to the thorn. It's not the thorn itself. The thorn itself is, is supposed to push us to understanding the grace of Christ is sufficient for us. That means we build our entire identity and sense of self on God. But now all of a sudden the devil says, nope, here comes some discouragement. You have messed up. God is not working in this for you. You're leading with a limp. 
that's ridiculous. Nobody in our culture or society is supposed to lead with a limp. You're embarrassing. It's an embarrassment. And that's the opposite of what Christ is trying to train Paul in understanding. So I thought God was supposed to just be this powerful God who would take away all of my limps and my thorns. But we see, again, it's not about that. God will leave them there to teach us, oftentimes, to grow us in an ability to be resilient in the face of suffering, to grow us in peace, in joy, in kindness, in strength, when we start to look elsewhere for identity, when we try and look at a type of celebrity culture where we can really be something through fame. As soon as we start to go there, things will eventually fall off the track. I love that Selena Gomez, who spent some time here in New Canaan with some serious mental health issues, I was watching her documentary, and I love when she talked about how her mental health has started to get fixed by mainly one way, mainly one way, and that is when she shifted her perspective from, I need to grow my own fame, I need to grow my own brand, to, wow, I want to serve other people, love other people, by helping them with what I've been given, not myself. And automatically, her mental health has gotten so much stronger, she's becoming more of a success by focusing on, how do I serve this world? How do I serve this world? That is how you grow with a type of limp that she's had because she's had lupus and other physical maladies, and yet she's looking at those as not horrible things in and of themselves. She's looking at them as opportunities to make documentaries about mental health to help connect empathetically with those who are going through physical issues as well as emotional health problems. That's why the greatest counselors are those who have gone through a lot of counseling themselves because they've connected with those who also lead with limps, have empathy with it, grow in vulnerability together, and then they're able to lead these people who are struggling out of the darkness into the light. Matthew 16, 25, forever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What is Jesus talking about there? I mean, because that's definitely a type of weakness. I thought you were supposed to gain your life. I thought you were supposed to become fully, fully, authentically driven and find out really who you are in the society. No, you're supposed to lose your life for his sake. I think it practically makes a lot of sense. Think about when it comes to sleep. The harder you try and get sleep, the more it evades you, does it not? Really want to fall asleep tonight. Really badly I'm going to sit here and I'm just going to like, where is the sleep? It's just not coming. But as soon as you start to realize, start to think, you know, I can't just be thinking and desiring sleep so badly right now, that's when sleep comes. Or think about remembering people's names. Some of us here are very bad at remembering people's names. I'm at the top of that list. When I see somebody who I've met maybe just a few times and try and remember their name, the harder I try and remember it, oftentimes the more it evades me. But then 10 minutes later, I'm like, how in the world? How did I not remember that person's name? And it came from not having to focus so hard on trying to remember their name in that very moment. Give up your life in order to gain it. Find me and you will gain life, I can promise you. Peace, love, joy, it will be yours and in abundance. That's the promise. 
The promise for you and me is to learn how to grow in vulnerability. It's learning how to grow in weakness, but pushing that weakness fully into the grace of Christ. And by pushing that weakness fully into the grace of Christ and really his cross, that's when we can get down on people's levels. That's how we can grow authentically. And the weird thing is, we see from a business perspective, we see from parenting, when you have that type of paradoxical living, that is where real power comes from to change this world. Real power comes from to actually share the gospel. The biggest leaders in the Bible were the most broken. And yet, oddly enough, the vast majority of people who came to know Christ was through them. It's that brokenness that spreads God's love. It's that brokenness that grows us in an ability to deal with failures ourselves, to bounce back from those failures, to grow in resiliency, to fail upwards. It's that ability that grows in us an opportunity to understand who really Christ is and that it's not, not all about me. And when that absorption that is so self-based is vanquished, that's when I become a whole human being. Paul elsewhere talks about pride, and he uses two different words. One, hubris, used in Colossians chapter 2 and in 1 Corinthians. One is hubris, one is physio. And hubris is the kind of pride you're thinking of. A physio, though, is way more so a type of distended form of self. And he's talking about a distended organ, a stomach, that's about to explode. And he says that that distended organ is very much like pride. It's like ego. It's empty, and yet it's about to explode. There's nothing it's ultimately centered on. When we center it on Christ, who has been the most paradoxical, most influential, influential, most powerful human being that's ever lived, now you get something in that organ that's going to create health in that organ, not a distended organ that's about to explode with just nothing in it. That is what it means to follow Christ in a paradoxical kind of way that's based on vulnerability. So remember, one, leading with a limp. Those who don't do so get in problems. It's, I'm not going to lead with any kind of limp, and they grow in narcissism, they grow in fear, and they grow in addictions. And that's shown in breakdown of business and families. Those who lead with limps grow in all kinds of freedom and the right kind of power. They move from that fake power to weakness in the limp, but then to true power. They're able to deal with failure, and they're able to ultimately fall on the grace of Christ, who will always lift them up no matter what. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that your son came and led with a limp. Thank you so much, Jesus, that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end. And yet the incredible paradox is that you became a servant, even a slave, and yet at the same time, you are the most powerful being in the universe. That you made these claims to be God, and then you died on the cross for us. It doesn't make any sense, and yet how interesting, Lord, it is that business leaders the best ones, that parents, the best ones, are able to live lives modeled out of that great paradox of power and weakness. Thank you, Jesus, that you've led with a limp, that you've created us to. Help that limp to make us fall on your grace, 
not on the approval of others, and to fall on community and the, the open arms of those who want to help us. We thank you for the church that you created the church to do just that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to Next Generation Saints. If you guys are, haven't already done so, go ahead and like and subscribe to this channel so you never miss a single episode I produce or bring out there. Um, and just let everyone know, because remember, the more you guys like and subscribe to this show, the more it goes into the algorithm, the more it gets out there. So, until next time, we meet again. May God richly bless y'all, my dearly beloved.